Beloved family of God, this is our Father's word for us today. He meets us in his word and he reveals himself to us that we might know him and in knowing him might have life. And so let us give our undivided attention to the reading of God's word. Your words have been hard against me, says the Lord. But you say, how have we spoken against you? You have said it is vain to serve God. What is the profit of keeping his charge or of walking as in mourning before the Lord of hosts? And now we call the arrogant blessed. Evildoers not only prosper, but they put God to the test and they escape. Then those who fear the Lord spoke with one another. The Lord paid attention and heard them. And a book of remembrance was written before him of those who feared the Lord and esteemed his name. They say, they shall be mine, says the Lord of hosts, in the day when I make up my treasured possession and I will spare them as a man spares his son who serves him. Then once more you shall see the distinction between the righteous and the wicked, between the one who serves God and the one who does not serve him. For behold, the day is coming, burning like an oven, when all the arrogant and all the evildoers will be stubble. The day that is coming shall set them ablaze, says the Lord of hosts, so that it will leave them neither root nor branch. For you who fear my name, the sun of righteousness shall rise with healing in its wings. You shall go out leaping like calves from the stall, and you shall tread down the wicked For they will be ashes under the soles of your feet on the day when I act, says the Lord of hosts. Remember the law of my servant Moses, the statutes and the rules that I commanded him at Horeb for all Israel. Behold, I will send you Elijah, the prophet, before the great and awesome day of the Lord comes. And he will turn the hearts of fathers to their children and the hearts of children to their fathers, lest I come and strike the land with a decree of utter destruction. And so ends the reading of our God's word. Let us ask uh, his blessing on our time in it this morning. Lord Jesus, you know the darkness of our minds and hearts. You know our fears. You know our doubts. And we ask that you would flood this darkness with the light of your grace and peace. That you would open our minds to your truth. That you would grant us hope. That you would grant us faith. Increase our understanding and allow us to receive you through your word. Let your love shine through the pages of your scripture. We ask that your spirit would be with us as we read and as we hear, that he would grant that we might delight in all we encounter in your word, we pray. Through Christ our Savior, may his name be praised. Amen. Uh, You may be seated. Well, if you're visiting with us this morning, you're new uh, here, we are, uh, we have been studying through the book of Malachi uh, for the last couple months, and we're finishing that study today. Malachi was a prophet, uh, it is a, he wrote a book, it's a short book, but a real gem right there at the end of the Old Testament. 
And in many ways, uh, this, this book of Malachi serves as God's final word to Israel before what would become 400 years of silence until the coming of Jesus Christ 2,000 years ago. And God is addressing Israel at this time uh, after they have spent uh, nearly a century in exile. Seventy years uh, they had been carried off by their neighboring nations and enslaved uh, because they had for uh, centuries really ignored God's word, done what they wanted instead. Uh, They had ignored his warnings, calling them to repentance. And so finally... Uh, God said, enough is enough. If you want to see what life without me looks like, I will show you. And he allowed Assyria to come in and take the tribes in the north, and Babylon to come in and take the tribes in the south into slavery and exile. But there, in exile... God came to his people and he promised them restoration. A day coming when they would again enter into the land and possess it. He spoke of deliverance from the oppression they were feeling, uh, enduring, and he spoke of peace. And now, that's come to pass. They're back in the land. The temple has been rebuilt. And, but the reality is, life is still hard. While they might not be enslaved in Assyria and Babylon, life in the land is still hard. Uh, they're still dealing with affliction from their neighbors and their, uh, the, the armies around them. And they are, as we would, they're asking the hard questions. Does God care about injustice? And if so, what's he going to do about it? Uh, is he even on the side of the righteous? Is, does God really love us if he allows us to endure so much hardship? And then that, that ultimate question that follows all of these... Is it all worth it? Is it worth following God? Or is it really just every man for himself? What's the benefit? Now, obviously, these sorts of questions are still around today. And so how Malachi addresses them is as relevant today as it was 2,400 years ago when this book was first written. And so Malachi is really arranged around answering two questions. Does God love Israel? Does God love his people? And does Israel love God? Do those who bear his name truly love him? And these questions are answered through a series of dialogues between God and his people. And the book opened with with that first question. Does God really love his people? Does God really love Israel? And his emphatic answer was yes. God loves you. And his answer was demonstrated in his choice of Israel over the other nations. In fact, uh, of of, uh, Jacob over his brother Esau. And God's willingness to come to Israel's rescue time and time again against their enemies. And his promises, as I've done in the past, I will continue to do. But then God turned to Israel to ask them the hard questions, whether they really loved him. Because love would mean, love for God would mean that the leaders in his church would guard his worship. 
from being profaned through the offering of unacceptable worship. And so God cries out, Oh, that there was just one priest among you that would be willing to, to lock the doors against those who would seek to come into God's house with anything but humble surrender. And then he followed that up, saying that loving him would mean that the leaders in his house would guard their teaching. They would not just let anything go. They would not get pushed around by men's desires. Leaders who love God preach and embody the cross of Jesus Christ. They preach nothing but Jesus Christ and him crucified. And at that point, he turned from the leaders of of Israel to the families and marriage. And he specifically addressed the husbands. And he told them that if if husbands really love God, it would be demonstrated in caring for their wives and being faithful to their wedding vows. And it was because of their failure to do this that God was rejecting their worship and their prayers. And he called them to repentance. He also addressed their concerns about him not being quick enough to to come and, and, and address justice and to set all things right. And his response was that their greatest problem was not their political foes. Their greatest problem was the sin in their own hearts. And that were God to come too soon... His justice would catch them up and they would be consumed in his wrath. And that the most merciful thing he could do would be to postpone that while he refined them and purified them and prepared them. And then last week, we saw God address their offerings. They weren't bringing what they were supposed to be bringing when they came to worship. And God said that this was because he was not first in their hearts. And so they prized their possessions and their riches more than they they prized God. And so they withheld what they owed him, showing that they didn't really love him the way they were supposed to. They needed to learn that God was their greatest possession. And so today, as we bring this book to a close, all of these themes come together as God returns to both questions and says that what his love looks like And when it will be most clearly seen is how he will treat his children on the last day. And what his people and their love should look like as they await his return. Namely, humble obedience and repentance. And so we're going to look at this passage this morning and we're going to see that when you don't see immediate benefits, the immediate benefits of trusting the Lord, what he wants you to know What he says matters is that he will remember you on the last day. That's what matters. And so we're going to look at this in three parts. The first part will just be seeing the charge that Israel was laying against God, namely that he was against them. And then we're going to see God's response as he tells them about his book of remembrance and why they should want their names to be written in it. 
And then finally, we're going to close by seeing God's instructions to us about how we are to live as we await uh, the return of Jesus on the last day. So that's where we're headed this morning uh, as we finish our look, our study at Malachi. God's opening words are are interesting because he confronts Israel uh, for bringing the charge against him that he has been against his people. That he has actually been, in a sense, working with their enemies. Now, these aren't the exact words they were using. And so Israel uh, responds with that classic, what do you mean? We've never said that. We've never said that you're against us. You know how this is when, when someone's clearly being antagonistic and you try to summarize what they're saying. And they're like, I never used that word. It's like, okay. <sighs> That's what Israel's doing. We never said the exact words, God is against us. God's not impressed by the semantics game, is he? He tells them how they've said this. Every time they've questioned whether or not serving God is really worth it, they've implied that God is not doing his job in giving them what he owes them. They've said uh, in verse 14 that they've rendered some obedience. Uh, they, uh, and they've made these dramatic shows of repentance, these ceremonial uh, weeping uh, uh, festivals. Thinking that God would be impressed with an abundance of tears. They've done all this, but life is still hard. And they still get sick. Their loved ones still die. Their hearts still get broken. God's people still get fired. They still get laid off or downsized. They still face political adversity. They still have to deal with unfaithful spouses and rebellious children. Farming the land is still hard. Labor is still painful. And then sometimes the rains don't come or the locusts do. And it all appears to be for nothing. And God's people are saying, we followed you and we thought things were going to get better and this isn't what we signed up for. Because they, they think that all of their obedience, all their great acts of contrition, if, if they can't make their lives a little bit better, then, 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 then they're pointless, they're for nothing. After all, what's the point of doing these things if it doesn't make your world a little bit better? That word uh, prophet in verse 14, uh, what's the prophet in this is, is literally a cut. Uh, this is where we get the term, uh, what's my cut, <laughs> right? What's my portion? What's my reward? They're saying, we've done our part. Where's our cut? In fact, when they look around, it's those who are openly wicked that seem to be getting ahead and prospering, verse 15. And they ask, what could that possibly mean but that God's on their side? Because isn't that what God does? He makes life better for those who are on his side. 
That's the conclusion you come to when you think that the reason for following God is to make your life better, more comfortable. And God says that this mentality, the subsequent complaints that flow from it, are proof that they think that God is against them. Beloved, if you look for proof uh, of God's love in the wrong place, you will never find it. If if you think that God's love must be demonstrated in, in a place where he's never promised to demonstrate it, you won't find it. So where should they look for proof that God is for them and not against them? If it's not, and how much better their lives are. He says it's in his book of remembrance. You see, not everyone in Israel was accusing God of evil and being against them. There was some, it clearly seems to be a minority, that were really uncomfortable with these kinds of complaints, this kind of language. And they're simply described in verse 16 as those who feared the Lord. This is the way the Bible describes those who surrender to God. They fear him. And that, this right here, is the great divide in the world. It's not between those with different skin colors. The great divide in the world is not between those who speak different languages. The great divide in the world is not between economic statuses. And it's not, believe it or not, based upon political parties. The great divide, the divide, the only one that matters is whether or not you surrender to God, whether or not you fear Him. Whether you surrender to Him or expect Him to surrender to you, whether you think you need His forgiveness or whether you think He needs yours. And those who surrender, those who understand that it's, that it's we who need his forgiveness, not he who needs ours. He says, these have their names written in his book of remembrance. Perhaps that phrase sounds familiar. Uh, the book of Esther. You may remember uh, that as chapter 6 opens... Uh, King Ahasuerus is unable to sleep and so he asks for his book of remembrance to be brought to him. Uh, This book was the king's list of those who had helped or served him in a unique way that he didn't want to forget about. He didn't want to fail to honor them. And so he had a list kept. Those who had sacrificed for him, he wanted to make sure he did something to reward them at some point, and so the list was kept. Now, earlier in the story, Esther's uncle Mordecai had heard about this plot to assassinate the king. And so he went and he reported this plot. 
And the king was appreciative. They, they uh, uh, executed the assassins. And he didn't reward Mordecai right away. Instead, he wrote down Mordecai's name in his book of remembrance. Now, as the story goes on in, in the book of Esther, we know that things are actually getting very dicey. Uh, tensions are, are increasing between Mordecai and uh, his nemesis. Uh, and while all this is going on, the king has a sleepless night and he asks for his book of remembrance to be brought to him. He looks through the list of names of people who have honored him and he finds Mordecai's name and he says, This man. This man honored me. And I want to honor him. And so when it really counts, the king remembers his subject and says, I'll honor him. That's what God says he does with those who fear him and esteem his name. That it might not be immediate, but your name's written down in his book. And he won't forget. Those who say that honoring the Lord is more important than earthly comfort. Those who say that they would rather seek the Lord's will than their own will. Those who surrender to him, who give up their earthly comfort and and their earthly power for his sake, their names are written down in his book of remembrance. And then when all seems lost, when the enemy seems to have the upper hand, when it really matters, the Lord will take out his book and he will honor those people. So when is that day when the Lord will take out his book? He mentions it several different ways. In verse 17, he says it's when he makes them his treasured possession. Chapter 4, verse 3 says it's the day when the Lord acts. Chapter 4, verse 1 calls it the day of his coming, when the arrogant are devoured by fire. And chapter 4, verse 5 calls it the great and awesome day of the Lord. This is the last day. This is Judgment Day. Uh, the, the, the last day of this creation before the dawning of the new creation and eternity. That's when you will see what it was all for. That's when the wicked who sit in judgment of God and in, in his ways will answer for their sins. And that, beloved, is when you will see your reward. On that day, he tells us in verse, uh, chapter 3, verse 18, there will be this great division made between those who fear the Lord and those who don't. Jesus took up that language in Matthew 25 when he says that he will come in judgment and he will divide the people like a shepherd separates his sheep from his goats. And and do you remember what he says to the sheep and the goats as he does this? He tells the sheep that he remembers the sacrifices they made for him. 
and those sacrifices will not go unrewarded. And they're like, what, did, what, what sacrifices? He says, you gave up sleep, you gave up food, you gave up comfort for my sake. And I wrote your name down and I remember. But with the others, the goats, he will remember all the ways they were against him. And they're going to ask, Lord, what do you mean against you? <laughs> Just like in Malachi. And he will remind them of all the sacrifices they were unwilling to make in this life for him. This is where God takes those who question whether or not he is for them or against them. This is where he sends those who complain about the struggles in this life. This is where he leads those who wonder if following him is really worth it. And the question is this. There's only one thing you have to be content with, and I want to know if you're content with it. Are you content to have your name written in my book of remembrance? In Luke chapter 10, uh, Jesus sent his disciples out to preach the gospel of the kingdom. And, and while they were doing that, they, they cast out demons in his name. And when they came back, boy, were they excited, thinking that this is what following Jesus was about. What they were able to accomplish for the kingdom. They were getting it done. But do you remember what Jesus said? He said, do not rejoice in this, that spirits are subject to you. But rejoice that your names are written in heaven. He had already warned them that on the last day many would come to him and say, Did we not cast out demons in your name? And that they would submit that as proof that they belong to him. That's where they would take comfort. Look what we accomplished. How is that even possible if we're not yours? And do you remember how he responds? He says, I never knew you. Depart from me, you workers of lawlessness. He had already told his disciples, casting out demons isn't enough. That's not where your comfort is. What really matters is that their names are written in his book. That they surrendered to him and acknowledged that their lives are his to do with whatever he wants. That they fear God more than they fear man and what men can do to them. That they look for their reward not in this life, but but the next. These he will welcome into his new creation, into heaven. Like the morning sun, the new creation, verse, uh, chapter 4, verse 2, will dawn and all the wounds that his people have suffered will be healed in an instant. The new creation will dawn with healing in its wings. And we'll think, what suffering? What affliction? What wounds? I don't remember a thing. This momentary and light affliction. 
He says we're going to be like newborn calves that go frolicking out of the stall, running around, excited about the new morning without a care in the world. Because the wicked will be no more. Everything will be set right. Beloved, that is your legacy. That's your inheritance. And so God assures you, your faith is not in vain. Regardless of what benefits you do or do not see in this life, your faith is not in vain because your names are written in his book of remembrance and your sacrifices will not go unrewarded. There are no more beautiful words than that. So as Malachi closes, he sets our eyes on the last day when Jesus will return and tells them as long as they look for rewards in this life, they're going to be frustrated and disappointed and they will find fault with God. And that will lead to grumbling and that will lead to complaining and that grumbling and complaining will ultimately be against God asking Where's the benefit in following him? Why do we even obey? Why do we go through the trouble of of walking as in mourning before the Lord? And God says, as he always has, do not rejoice in what looks like power in this world, but that your names are written in my book of remembrance. Now, I think there's a temptation when we hear this to think that what God is saying is that... that, um, Life in this, in this age, this world doesn't matter. That God's saying, just look to the last day, distance yourself from life, and that's not it at all. And so he wants us to, to know how to prepare for that last day, how to, re- how to prepare for his return. And that's where he ends the final few verses uh, of Malachi. Chapter 4, verses 4 through 6. And ironically... Where he ends are with the very things that Israel was saying were of no benefit, obedience and repentance. And he says, that's all that's of benefit. (laughs) So he starts in chapter 4, verse 4. Remember my servant Moses and the statutes and the rules. He says obedience matters. Not because it gets you a cut or a profit in this life, but because it's right. Because it honors God. Because it's what you were made to do. Beloved, you don't obey because it makes your world a better place. If that were the case, your obedience would have to be perfect. Absolutely perfect. If your comfort and your success are a result of how good you are, only hell awaits. The last thing you ever want to say to God is, reward me according to my obedience. That's not why obedience matters. Obedience matters because holiness matters. Obedience matters because our heart's longing is to be like Jesus. 
Obedience matters because sin is, is deadly and destructive. Obedience matters because you have been set free from slavery to sin. Obedience matters because a good tree bears good fruit. Obedience matters because it flows out of a heart that is surrendered to Jesus as Lord. The the Israelites' greatest problem was arrogance. They were living as if they were self-dependent and self-ruled, and they believed they got to tell God what was right and what he needed to do. And obedience is an act of surrender. It's confessing, God knows better than I do. Submitting to his rules is the greatest cure for arrogance. But then in the last two verses, he says he will send Elijah to to prepare the people for the Lord's return by turning the hearts of fathers and sons. Now, there's been a lot of debate about what this means. On the one hand, John the Baptist said that he was not Elijah. And then on the other hand, Jesus said that if we were willing to accept it, he was. So who's right, Jesus or his cousin John? Well, they both were. To understand this, we, we need to understand what the ministry of Elijah was, because that's what it's really about. Not the person of Elijah, but his ministry. Uh, perhaps his most famous episode was when he confronted uh, the prophets of Baal in 1 Kings 18. Uh, you might remember this. They poured water on, called down fire from heaven, whose God is more powerful, right? Now the question is Why? Why did Elijah have this this great standoff with the prophets of the false gods? Was it simply to humiliate the false prophets? Was it to show off? No, not at all. Because right before the fire fell from the sky, here's what Elijah prayed. O Lord, let it be known this day that you are God in Israel, and that I am your servant, and that I have done all these things at your word. Answer me, O Lord, answer me, that this people may know that you, O Lord, are God, and that you have turned their hearts back. The ministry of Elijah was one of turning the hearts of Israel back to their God, of leading them to true repentance. That was his life's work. Uh, When his time on earth was done... Uh, his, uh, his apprentice, Elisha, uh, carried that ministry on. Specifically, we're told that he was given the spirit of Elijah. He was not the reincarnation of Elijah, but he was given his ministry, his spirit, and his power, which is exactly the same language that the New Testament uses of John the Baptist. Luke tells us he will go before Jesus in the spirit and the power of Elijah to turn the hearts of the fathers to the children and the disobedience... Uh, to the wisdom of the just, to make ready for the Lord a people prepared. You see, John was saying, I'm not the reincarnation of Elijah, and he was right. But he was a prophetic voice sent to call God's people to humble repentance, lest they should be caught unprepared for the last day. In other words, the very things that Israel thought were worthless are the only things God says matter. 
Today, pastors are called to carry that on. Calling God's people to repentance and obedience, to humility and surrender. That's what matters. Hearts turned to God. Do you pray for me? That I would hold these things before you and never waver? You should. Do you pray for yourselves? That you would not be tempted to find value in following God in the benefits in this life, but that you would be content that your names are written in his book of remembrance? That on that day, you will see the distinction between the righteous and the wicked, between the one who fears God and the one who doesn't, between the one who serves God and the one who doesn't. That's what it all comes down to. And that division is made visible for us each week as we come to the Lord's Supper. Because only those who have been approved by leaders in Christ's church are allowed to come. So what makes them uh, worthy of approval, of acceptance? It's, It's not how sinless they are or somehow good enough. The privilege of coming to this table belongs only to those who fear the Lord, who have surrendered to him and have been welcomed into his church. And two things demonstrate that. Two things leaders in the church are called to look for. Humble repentance and the fruit of obedience. Despairing of your own goodness and trusting in Jesus Christ alone for your salvation. And obedience, not because it saves you, but because it's the necessary fruit of salvation that shows that you have actually surrendered, not just claimed to. And so the Lord's Supper is meant to be a sneak peek of the division that will be made on the last day. Why? Why give us a sneak peek? What's the point? What's the benefit? Well, the benefit is twofold. First, a comfort to those who have been received to assure you that your sacrifices are not in vain. Because I know how the week goes. It gets hard. And you wonder, is it really worth it? And then on Sunday morning, the Lord invites you to his table and says, this is what it will look like on the last day. It's worth it. It's worth it. But the second purpose is to warn those who haven't yet surrendered that it's time to bow, to repent, and to surrender. Because things will not always continue as they do today. There is a day coming when every knee will bow before the Lord Jesus Christ. For those who refuse to bow in this life, those who have no fear of the Lord, that day will be an absolute terror. And today is meant to be a warning. There's still time. 
It's not too late. Bow, repent, surrender. Ask that your name would be written in his book of remembrance. Because for those who do, those who fear the Lord, those who surrender their lives, that will be the greatest day ever. Because the new creation dawns and every tear is dried. Every sin will be removed. And death itself will be eradicated. And the Lord will welcome us into his presence. The morning dawn will rise with healing its wings. And we will know that it was all worth it. Even so we pray. Come quickly, Lord Jesus. I'd like to ask the elders to come forward and Pastor Isaac that we might receive uh, this gift this morning. Our gracious God, we thank you for your word. We thank you for your love. And we thank you that we are not left in this world without guidance. We have your word telling us what to expect, how it all ends, assuring us that our sacrifices are not in vain, and telling us how to spend our days in obedience and humble repentance, confessing that you are good and your ways are perfect. And so we ask that you would give us the patience we need and the strength that is necessary to await that day when your son will come and set all things right, and the sun will rise on the new creation where righteousness alone remains. And we spend all eternity with you, even so we pray. Come quickly, Lord Jesus. Amen.